to meet you. Um, okay, so what is today, kids? We got you in here. Halloween. Halloween, exactly. Does anybody who celebrates Halloween want to tell me what you're going to be? Dress up as, maybe? <laughs> you already have it on. That's awesome. Thank you for raising your hand, too. Yes. Pardon? Oh, my gosh. So cool. Well done. Any adults are going to dress up? Want to dress up? Elisa? What are you going to do? I'm going to be a banana. Oh, a banana. <laughs> I love it. I love it. On point. That's great. That's great. Well, so yes, it is actually, it is Halloween. Um, it's what used to be called All Hallows' Eve. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you guys want to share? Yeah. Yell it out. Nice. Ooh, those are great. I wish I could see you all. It used to be, uh, today used to be called All Hallows' Eve, or Hallows' Eve, and so that's how the word morphed into Halloween. It's also called All Saints' Day in a lot of traditions. Did any of you guys in the churches, if you grew up in church, grow up with those traditions about All Saints' Day? Did you? Maybe a few of us. I did not. It was straight up, you know, candy and costumes at my house, but that is uh, in the ancient church calendar. It's a day to look back on and kind of um, do some special practices. This is where we get you know, the lighting of the candle. Um, some, some traditions kept vigil for those who had passed, especially those who had passed just in the previous year. Also, it's a day to remember just really extraordinary uh, Christians who were living examples of Christ in the world. It's a day to consider kind of our place or one's place in that you know, great kind of unfolding family tree, of which we're all a small part. So that was the purpose of today, along with tomorrow, November 1st, uh, remembrance of those who had passed away, and to acknowledge in some way that the dead in Christ do live and are present to us somehow. Also, to let the lives of those who had gone before us point us to Christ by showing us a way to live as Christ lived in the world. In fact, all of Hebrews 11 is a list of these great examples of faithful people throughout the story of the Bible, uh, from Abel to Abraham, from Moses to David, from the earliest Christians all the way down through most of history, it was thought wise to consider the lives of faithful people, the people who had set a course for us by following the example of Christ. And they called them saints, so All Saints Day, to designate these instances where a person demonstrated great, great faithfulness to Christ through a lived example. So that's why we refer to, of course, I know you've all heard these guys, St. John, St. Francis. We sing songs often, um, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns. The saints of the church are held up because their stories are worth recovering, I think, and they're, they're worth telling and they're worth even emulating. And I think when we don't tell the stories of Saints, those stories get replaced with hero stories because we love a good hero story, don't we? That's why Marvel movies made, I looked it up, $23 billion so far with a B. I think that's why we don't really know the story of St. Francis as well as we know the story of like an Iron Man. We don't know Claire or Teresa um, as well as we know Captain America. And I'm a fan, you know, no, no offense to the Marvel people, but the stories that we tell, I do think, shape our imagination for what the best kind of life looks like. Uh, 
And if we want to look like the Avengers, we tell that story. But I do think we maybe need better stories, although those are good. Uh, that's why we take a few weeks in this season, in this month of the calendar year, to tell just a few of them. So I'm going to kick us off today and start by talking about um, and telling you a story of a guy who some of you may not know so well. I didn't know a whole ton about him. Um, but to tell his story, we do have to do just a little bit of historical work. So just like very brief history. <laughs> we'll start in the early 1500s. It'll just take a minute. Um, all of Latin America had been conquered in the 1500s by Spain and Portugal. They had colonized really all of Latin America and enslaved the indigenous people who were living there. Um, their brutal conquering of these countries can be summed up really in three words, gold, glory, God, pretty much in that order. They wanted to expand their empire, and they did. They took what had been before in Latin America subsistence farming communities and turned them into profit centers by enslaving the people to exploit the natural resources for export goods. So if we fast forward about a couple hundred years, Spain and Portugal have really begun at this point to lose their influence on the, the world stage. As they begin to lose their power, they can no longer keep a grasp on Latin America. And the indigenous people see their opportunity really to rebel and to fight for their independence and overthrow. So by the 1800s, virtually all of Latin America had declared their independence. But keep in mind, for all of those years, their entire economy was based on their agricultural export goods. And what happens, of course, when the wealthiest families rise up and they take possession of the land? So think like oligarchs, oligarch families. So the vast majority of people in Latin America, really nothing changes because they were working the land for their colonizers and now they're working the land for these few wealthy families. So 1962, so we've glossed over a lot, 1962 rolls around and something really pivotal happens in the Catholic Church. Pope John Paul XXIII calls for a second Vatican Council. And it was to take place and to look at the mission and the identity of the Catholic Church and how the Catholic Church was relating to the modern world. It is hard to overstate the impact of Vatican II on the Catholic Church. It was a, it was a massive renewal, really, for the church. It re represented just a huge shift in the way the church uh, conducted itself. Uh, it was this move from a posture in being really very much like a closed, kind of dusty old fortress um, to a posture of they were much more open and where their mission, they were missionally focused and much more community engaged. It really changed everything for the Catholic Church, even the way they did Mass. So up until this time, the Mass was performed by a priest who would get in front of the congregation like I am now, but turn away from the people facing the altar and say the entire Mass in Latin, which no one understood. After Vatican II then, they changed the whole thing. They decided it was okay to face the people and say the mass in the common language. So the people were able to begin to engage with the message that was being taught, and they were able to be active participants in worship. Another big initiative that came out of Vatican II was this push to get priests and nuns more involved in the communities where they were serving. 
They encourage them to be in the trenches with the people and with the poor. And all of this really mattered because when Spain and Portugal had colonized these countries, their mission was to make the world Catholic. So everyone was Catholic. So if you're a powerful nation trying to maintain control really of the masses, and they can't read the Bible, they can't understand the mass, the message was really what happens here doesn't matter. It's just temporary. And all that matters is what happens after you die, going to heaven. So that message is really convenient when it worked to their advantage. But as the message began to change, it became a much less convenient one. So there is a gathering after Vatican II uh, for Latin American Catholic leaders in Medellin, Colombia. And the gathering was to discuss the implications of Vatican II on Latin American churches. So you can imagine what is playing out at this point in Latin America when the nuns and the priests begin to dive into the deep end of ministry with the poor and with the oppressed. It changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, we know that around here uh, when we talk about immigrants or we talk about people that are experiencing homelessness. Um, that's this amorphous sort of conversation, isn't it? Until it's really like my friend, Maria, my friend, Frank. Um, so it changed everything. And these nuns and priests begin to teach the Bible. They start teaching stories like the one we read this morning uh, from Exodus and how God moved their, his people out of slavery and into freedom. They start reading stories about Jesus and really learning the stories and how he seemed to care a whole heck of a lot about oppressed people and about marginalized people. So it morphs into this new message and this whole new stream of theology really emerges from this time and out of the Medellin Conference called Liberation Theology. Liberation Theology focused on what they defined as God's preferential option for the poor. And the focus of salvation stopped being just what happens after you die and became God establishing God's kingdom right here and right now through justice. So you can imagine how well that went over with the ruling elite when thousands of newly impassioned nuns and priests began to move about the rural countryside and teaching this new message. Faith changed really from a tool for that ruling elite to use to maintain control to becoming a direct threat really to their power. So what did they do? Well, they did what all oppressive regimes do when their power is threatened. They just start to crack down on the threat. They start arresting, torturing, and kidnapping religious leaders who were preaching this message, directly started targeting the church. So here's where our saint for today does enter the story, and I do have one to talk about. He is a person that lived through this entire transition, really, in Latin America, and he kind of embodied this moment in the church's history. His name was Oscar Romero. So to get some perspective, um, I just wanted to show you a map of Latin America. And if we um, look at that really quick, but then if we zoom into Central America, we see kind of in the north there is El Salvador. Um, if we could zoom in even a little further, um, we would see this little sleepy village up in the north part of El Salvador in the mountains. And it was called Ciudad Barrios. And the town was only accessible by horseback or foot just a little tiny place, and it was into this town that Oscar was born in 1917. 
He was one of eight children born to Guadalupe and her husband Santos. Most of the people in the town were subsistence farmers or cash crop kind of farmers. But Guadalupe actually had inherited um, this little small hillside plot of land on which the family was able to grow and sell coffee beans. And Santos actually worked as the town postman for a little while too. But uh, they were not wealthy people, but by the town standard, little tiny rural town, um, they did okay. They were able to feed their family and support themselves. So Oscar, like the other kids in the town, went to school in the town, only to third grade though, because that's all they offered. Can you imagine not be even being allowed to go to school past third grade? So he did that, and because he loved learning so much, and he was a bright kid and a good student, um, his parents employed the town teacher um, for a couple of years after that, after the third grade. But when he was 11, his dad decided, you know, you need to get a job, and as you do when you're 11, and he secured, <laughs> he secured an apprenticeship with a carpenter. But really, even as this, as, at this age, he was so young, something was really starting to brew in Oscar. Every day after his little apprenticeship, he would stop by on the way home uh, one of the two towns, uh, one of the two churches in the town, and pray. He just loved to be in the, in the churches. Of course, the mass was in Latin, so he wouldn't have understood, but he just loved to be there, he would say later, and feel God's presence. His brothers actually would tell later of their annoyance with him because they all slept in this little tiny two-room uh, home, and so all the kids were all bundled up together, but he would get up in the middle of the night frequently and go pray, even as a young kid. So you can imagine his brothers wreaked havoc on him, I'm sure. <laughs> so he was not able really at this point to articulate, of course, what was going on with him, but by the time he turned 13, he declared, I wanna be a priest. That's what I wanna do. And it's so funny, as often we study these saints, especially kind of the more modern ones, and it's so funny, their parents always um, really discourage their kids from full-time religious life. Every time I've, I've studied a saint, they're like, please don't go into the ministry. But uh, Oscar's family was no different. Um, Santos, especially his father, was not a particularly devout person, and he really wanted Oscar to just be gainfully employed, to have a vocation. But Oscar's mind was pretty made up, and he left uh, the little town at 13 and traveled to what was the big city, uh, San Miguel, it was seven hours away on a, on a horse, and he went to something called minor seminary, which would have been kind of like going to a secondary uh, boys' school, just designed for young men specifically who wanted to enter the priesthood. And it was a big deal for Oscar. It was a really big transition for a really introverted and sheltered little guy. It was a full day's ride, and it was a big, hot city, unlike the little mountain town he had come from. But Oscar adjusted, he made some friends, and he showed some ability, and he stayed there throughout the whole, his whole school years. And um, when he turned 20, some scholarships were secured for him, and he was chosen to go study in Rome. And he would stay in Rome for a few years. He completed his studies in 1942 and was ordained into the priesthood. The plan was at that time for him to stay on and uh, start his graduate studies. But because of World War II, he had to go back to El Salvador, where there was a shortage of priests. So he got placed when he returned to El Salvador in an extremely rural, poverty-stricken area, where he worked with among those who were called campesinos. 
They were people who were living in temporary shelters uh, in order to work the land for the landowners. They were an incredibly vulnerable group of people. They were migrant workers, essentially. So he's tossed really into the deep end of this, this work and this ministry with the poorest of the poor. Um, but because of his skill set, uh, he's not there actually very long, although he really enjoyed it. The bishop didn't want one of his Rome-educated priests languishing in some you know, backwater town. So he's called back to a more urban area where he's really removed from working with the very poor. And he's called to be the secretary for the bishop of San Miguel. There were half a million Catholics in San Miguel and 21 priests. So the work was never ending for him. He was really swamped, um, especially under a bishop uh, that was reported who was very uninterested in a hands-on approach when it came to running the diocese. So a lot of the work really fell to Romero. His work at this time included administrating a school, editing a diocesan newspaper. He served as a chaplain to a bunch of religious groups. He presided over at least one mass a day. He developed a vibrant radio ministry. His homilies were recorded and broadcast all over the country. They became popular. So Oscar the secretary was really organized and diligent. In fact, some people commented at the time that he was kind of a bookworm. He was kind of bookish. He liked all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. He was very organized. But also Oscar the pastor was especially mindful of the poor and the marginalized. I mean, he himself had been from very humble beginnings, and he had worked closely with very poor people. Anyway, he organized the local shoeshine boys into an association, and he made sure in the city that those, those young men had a place to sleep and a, and a meal to eat. He helped found a, a trade school for kids from very poor families so they would have a vocation. He was often ministering in jails. Uh, he organized food distributions and nutrition classes. And he started Alcoholics Anonymous in all the Catholic churches. So he was knee deep in parish ministry in San Miguel for the next 23 years. He was also during this time on very friendly terms with the very wealthy of San Miguel. He believed deeply until the day he died, he would write this in his journals, that the gospel was intended for everyone, the poor and the very rich. And he also recognized the practicality. He needed the goodwill and the generosity of that class of people to maintain his ministry to the poor. So all of this was before Vatican II, which will become important. But he was already doing so much of what Vatican II put an emphasis on because he was really steeped in the story of Jesus, and he did believe that ministry to the vulnerable was absolutely the work of the church. So at first, Oscar was really on board with Vatican II, all of those initiatives, because he was really kind of doing that stuff already. But when the Conference of Medellin happened, and he saw the priests going out, and really, in his view, riling up the, pre the peasants, he started speaking out against it and became very critical. He saw it as irresponsible and would eventually, he thought it would create more problems for, and oppression if they started rising up. He was all about justice, but he was not down for starting a revolution. In fact, he spoke out against it and he made the other priests who were really working with him on the ground very uh, frustrated. One priest at the time said about Romero, he criticizes injustice in the abstract but criticizes methods of liberation in the concrete. So basically, we need you to put your money where your mouth is, Father. 
But he kept a journal um, all through these years, and it's published, and you can read it. And I believe from reading those entries, he was really doing his best. He was doing his best to follow God's call and also follow his own conscience. That call uh, from God would change dramatically in a matter of a three-week time period in the late 70s. Leading up to these weeks, the government started really targeting church, the church and the priests in a really methodical way. Um, at that point, there had been kind of some occasional like police brutality, but they began to happen, those instances began to happen more and more frequently. Priests that traveled outside the country would not, were not being allowed back in. Priests that had been born in another country were being deported. And then soon they just started being harassed and really disappearing altogether. Um, there were ads that were circulating around the country that said, be a patriot, kill a priest. Then in late 1970, actually late February 1977, several things happened in a row that would really change the course of El Salvadoran history and also the, the course of Oscar's life. The first was on February 22nd. It was the country's presidential election. The election was rigged from the very start. Um, there was a really obvious candidate who represented the wealthy ruling class, it was clear. And uh, think of really any election fraud you can come up with, they did it. They stuffed the ballot boxes, police uh, prevented people from getting to polling stations, particularly the poor. Everyone knew it was a farce, really, right from the start. Then the second thing that happened was just a couple days later, it was really stunning. Uh, Romero was actually named the new Archbishop of San Sal Salvador. It was a total shocker. It, it was time for the previous archbishop to retire, but there was an obvious candidate named Bishop Rivera that should have taken his place. That's who everybody really wanted. He was the assumed choice. He would have carried out all the initiatives of the Conference of Medellin and support of the liberation theology and all that the previous archbishop had been doing for 38 years. But instead of consulting the people and the priests, the Pope's representative from Rome consulted only the military, the high society people, the governing authorities, and the business sector. And they chose Romero. They thought he, they, he could be controlled and that maybe he wouldn't make waves. Remember, he was on really friendly terms with that group. One of the bishops from that time said, they asked the rich and the rich gave their complete backing to Romero's appointment. They felt like Romero was one of theirs. Well, Romero himself didn't actually see this promotion coming. It was a, total, a totally surprising decision. He, he left home that, or he left there that same day and went back to his previous diocese to wrap things up. And while he was gone, the next day, the presidential candidate was officially named. Their guy had won. And the people just began to protest. And they start gathering in this huge square in San Salvador. And over the next couple of days, more and more people joined this protest until there were about 40,000 people in the square. And because Romero was gone, another uh, priest was saying the mass. And in the middle of the mass in the square, the military surrounds everybody, surrounds the square, and says, you have a matter of minutes to get out of here, to disperse. So, and while the people were trying, they were trying to get out and disperse, they opened fire on the crowd. Many of them took refuge in the church there on the square and remained there all the way until the middle of the night. 
while the previous archbishop who was still there and the Red Cross was able to kind of negotiate with the troops. They called Father Romero in the night and he came back immediately and he gathered all the bishops and the archbishops together and wrote a letter condemning the violence and decided that it would be read in every mass on the following Sunday. Well, Romero helped to write the letter, but, before, but the night before, he was starting to have second thoughts. He kind of got cold feet, and he contacted uh, the other archbishop who was helping to organize this whole thing, and he said, you know what, I want to read this letter at the 8 o'clock mass, where it'll just, be, it'll just be the peasants who come in for the 8 o'clock mass. I am not comfortable reading the, it at the noon mass, which is where all the wealthy people had, would come, because the tensions are just too high. I'm not sure we can do it. So the other archbishop agreed because he said, well, the morning one is the one that's going to be broadcast anyway. It's going to be on the radio. So whatever you think. So later that same day, a third thing happens. This is really close proximity. Remember I said there were three? One of Romero's dearest, dearest friends and fellow priests, Father Rutilio Grande, who was known as a champion to the poor, and he had actually presided over... Romero's ordination ceremony. They were very dear friends. He was driving, Rutilio Grande was driving in a car with an elderly gentleman and a teenage boy from his parish. And while they were en route to this peasant village where he was going to say a mass, they were ambushed and they were, they were all three killed. Romero got word of this and was completely distraught, as you can imagine. He drove out in the middle of the night to where they were, and he just stood over them, looking at his friend and these two innocent people. And something inside of him just shifted. It just changed. I have read all these accounts now of Oscar Romero over the last couple weeks, and many, many, there's a, this is the great thing about a modern saint, there's a lot out there about him and multiple accounts of him. But every time I get to this point, I can't help but think of this image of Exodus 3 in my my head. Maybe it's because we just got out of a whole Exodus series this summer. It's fresh in my memory. But in Exodus 3, uh, you know, Moses is pretty wiped out. He's been kind of wandering around in the desert. And he comes across this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't seem to be consumed or being burnt up. And I think he could have kind of gone like, well, that's weird, and turned away. He could have ignored it, but instead he turns his head to the bush, and when God sees that God has Moses' attention, he calls him by name. And Moses replies with what I think is such a stunning response. He says one little word in Hebrew, me," which is, here I am. I don't think we really get this word in English. Um, it's such a nuanced thing, and it happens just only a few times, a handful of times in the scripture. But every time it happens, it really marks this sort of defining moment in a person's life. It's not just like a roll call, like here, yep, I'm here, in that he shows up physically. But it has to do with the state of Moses' heart. When he responds with, he named me, here I am, everything in his being is saying, I am here in a complete and deep way. And it really changes him. And this is what I see happening in Father Romero's life. He stands over this, this body of his, one of his best friends and the innocent people, too. And he becomes fully, fully charged and awake and aware of God's calling. Something inside him just cracks open. He says, here I am. 
He was at the funeral all night, this long night of a Catholic funeral, and the next morning, when he was supposed to be reading that letter, he changed his mind again. He decided not to do what he had initially said, to only read it at the eight o'clock, and to not read it where the important people would be there. He reads the letter and he just sets it aside. This is his fresh from his grief. You know, he sets the letter aside and he just starts speaking from his heart. And this is part of what he said that day. If this had been an ordinary funeral, I would speak of my friendship with Father Grande, who at crucial times in my life was so close to me. And those times will never be forgotten, but this is a moment to gather from these deaths a message to all of us who remain on pilgrimage. The liberation that Father Grande preached was a liberation rooted in faith, and because it is so often misunderstood for it, Father Rutilio Grande died. Who knows if the murderers who have now fallen into excommunication are listening to the radio in their hideout. Listening maybe in their conscience to this we want to tell you, murderous brothers, that we love you. And we ask God for repentance in our hearts because the church is not able to hate. It has no enemies. But the church loves them and dies like Christ. Father, forgive them. And the entire sanctuary was just stunned into silence. The church has no enemies. And that next week, Romero just went into action. He was no longer befriending the wealthy and kind of kowtowing to them. He gathered all the bishops and the archbishops from the, around the area, and they made several big decisions. They decided, first of all, to cancel all the Catholic schools in the whole country for three days because they wanted the wealthy elite who sent their kids there to really feel it. The second thing was that they decided not to go to any more governing authorities and bless what they were doing. So when the new president was going to take office, they weren't going to show up and bless that ceremony. It was a big deal in this very Catholic country. The third thing was really astounding. They decided that the follow, following Sunday, they were gonna cancel every single mass in the entire country and hold one single mass in San Salvador. And they would broadcast it on the radio countrywide. So the next Sunday, when Oscar showed up to perform the mass, 100,000 people had gathered outside to hear it in person. And thousands more were listening on the radio across the nation. And this is part of what he said during that mass. I want to give public thanks today here in front of the archdiocese for the unified support that is being expressed for the gospel and for these beloved priests. Many of them are in danger and like Father Grande, they are risking the maximum sacrifice. Whoever touches one of my priests is touching me and they will have to deal with me. And at the mention of Father Grande's name, the entire crowd just erupted into applause. And from that point, Father Romero had become so emboldened and so steeped in his commitment to following Jesus by serving those around him. He started just being called in publications, uh, the voice for the voiceless. And even as the violence continued, he continued to speak up every week the body count just went higher and higher. The civilian death toll was more really than we even have a t context for. And you know, part of the ugly truth, guys, is the United States, out of fear of rising hostility um, in Latin America, was sending massive amounts of money and weapons to the government as they just 
massacred their own people. So many disappeared. So, so many people were refugees or, or left homeless. And because the government controlled all of the newspapers and all the radio, no one was even reporting this. The only other radio station that was being broadcast was the one controlled by the Catholic Church. So thousands of people across the country would listen every single day, tuning in to lis listen to Father Romero. And he would simply, he would just read the names of people who had been killed or kidnapped. And he would preach sermons of hope and of encouragement. He told the truth and it put him into great danger. At one point, the Catholic radio station had been bombed and they couldn't broadcast anything. And thousands of people showed up in live mass and just held up tape recorders so they could record the message and disseminate it through the countryside. Oftentimes in the campesinos, there would be just a few people who were literate, but they wanted to write letters to Father Romero to encourage him because they recognized in him it was their voice. And they, uh, those who didn't know how to write their names would just push their thumbs in the dirt and sign the letter. They wanted to encourage him to keep speaking out. But there was this massive spiritual renewal happening in the country, just even amidst all of these horrible circumstances. And as the opposition grew, Romero was one of the only voices left speaking up in that country. Every week, he would meet with a team of priests and lay people, and he would listen to their stories, and he would take notes of what was going on for them. And then when he would prepare his, prepare his sermons, he would hold the notes in one hand and the stories of the people in one hand and the scripture in the other. He had a friend that would say uh, later on that he witnessed him on more than one occasion in his room at 10 o'clock at night till four in the morning preparing his sermons and praying. And then he would sleep a little bit and then he would be at the cathedral at eight in the morning. And he would do his very best to challenge the victims and to encourage the victims and he just kept telling the truth to people in power, telling those stories. And all the while, he would say, stop this, stop it. All is forgiven. You must stop the violence against your brothers. On March 23rd in 1980, he addressed the soldiers and the police officers directly uh, over his broadcast. He said, I would like to appeal in a special way to the men of the army and in particular the troops of the National Guard you belong to our own people brothers. You kill your own peasant brothers and in the face of an order to kill that is given by a man. The law of God should prevail that says do not kill. No soldier is obliged to obey an order counter to the law of God. No one has to comply with an immoral law. In the name of God, in the name of the suffering people whose cries rise to heaven more loudly each day, I implore you, I beg you, in the name of God, stop the violence. On the following day, um, March 24th in 1980, Father Romero was presiding over this little tiny mass in a hospital chapel when someone walked in and shot and killed him while he was saying the mass. He had been receiving death threats for some time. Um, he also had been receiving offers from other countries for safe passage and for protection, but he refused to leave. A couple weeks before his death, he said in an interview, martyrdom is a great gift from God that I do not believe I have earned. But if God accepts the sacrifice of my life, then may my blood be the seed of liberty and a sign of hope that will soon become reality.
Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the life and the example of Father Romero. Lord, a saint who died uh, with your name literally on his tongue. And like you did for Father Romero, Father, I, I pray that you lead us to the moments where we say, he named me, here I am. Whatever journey, whatever work that calls us to, I know we can't do everything, Father, but we ask that you give us strength to do something. Amen. We're going to receive communion together, and um, I was just wondering if maybe today we would, we normally dismiss row by row, you come up and the servers will say, um, remember the body and blood of Christ. I was wondering if today, if you want to do, if you want to do this, you don't have to participate, but I wonder if you might respond with, here I am just today uh, in response to remember the body and blood of Christ. But first, let's, uh, let's pray and read the scripture from 1 Corinthians 11 when the Apostle Paul told the church, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it, Lord, into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out. Then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let this world feast on us and taste and see that you are good so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come?